but we're in the middle of Eastertide, a fourth week of celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what a great privilege it is to think deeply about uh, the salvation that's been brought to us by the work he has wrought, by the confirmation of that work through the resurrection. We just heard Deuteronomy chapter 4 read where God uh, revealed himself, Moses driving home to uh, the people of God, how he revealed himself through miraculous means to prove himself to be the only true and one God. Well, here we've been studying the Gospel of John where we've seen seven different miraculous signs uh, pointing to the identity of Christ. And on top of it all, the greatest sign, that of the resurrection that points to the fact that, well, Jesus himself is God. And Thomas tells us so. So we're going to take a look at this passage that talks about Thomas's interaction with Jesus and this wonderful confession of faith that Thomas makes. But let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would uh, be with us here in the sanctuary and in each of our homes where those we love are gathered together, our church family. Lord, may your peace be upon each of those homes. May you uh, bless them. May you speak to the hearts of those who belong to you through uh, this service, through the songs and prayer, and particularly as we consider your word uh, right now. We ask your presence and power to be with us in uh, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, 1770, just a few blocks away from where Park Street Church is now uh, located here, John Adams was asked to help provide a legal counsel or legal defense for the British soldiers who were involved in the Boston Massacre. Adams, of course, was sympathetic to the colony's concerns or growing concerns uh, towards England and the way King George was treating the colonies, but he accepted the task anyway, knowing how hostile the colonists were towards these troops, uh, and, and also knowing that his legal practice was probably going to suffer because of this representation. But he was convinced after he reviewed the facts and, and, and heard what happened, he was convinced that they were innocent. So he thought it was appropriate for him to represent them. And in part of his closing arguments, he said this. He said, I will enlarge no more on the evidence. But submit to you, gentlemen, facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, uh, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Facts are a stubborn thing. But we live in a really strange time right now. Uh, when it comes to the issue of facts and truth. For the last 50 years or so, uh, what has been called postmodernism has been the prevailing philosophy uh, within our ac academies and our culture. 
It's a belief system that is contrasted against the modernist drive to discover truth uh, and objectivity uh, to uh, facts. And uh, that all started in the Enlightenment in 1700s or so and went all the way through to the mid-1900s. Uh, this drive, they believe, to, to understand objective truth was misplaced and futile. Postmodernists believe that every observation we make is so influenced by our perceptions uh, that, uh, or, or as Adams you know, put it, as our uh, inclinations and our passions, our wishes, that there really can't be anything such as objective truth. It's all just subjective observations. So our postmodernist world, uh, it encourages us to live however we want as we best think and feel based on our own perceptions, not based on uh, truth-bound structures, uh, some objective moral code or uh, an ontologically based worldview. This isn't unfamiliar to you, you know, we just call it relativism. But then, over the past eight years, a philosophical counter-revolution has occurred in which the, the upper echelons of our culture insist that there is objective truth. There's fake news and there's real news, or there's fake news and there's truth. There's no such thing as relativism. Uh, it's possible to push beyond our, our wishes and our inclinations and our passions and identify objective truth. So uh, every newspaper, every news organization now has what we call fact checkers. Uh, these people who uh, are skeptically uh, objective, skilled at disregarding spin. You know, they can dig deeply to find out the real truth over competing claims uh, that have been made. And so we live in this like really strange moment where we're hammered over the head philosophically with the notion that there is no such thing as objective truth, but we're told by the New York Times and the Washington Post and Facebook and Twitter's Twitter. Yes, wait, wait a second. Yes, there is, there is such a thing as facts and truth, and we are the guardians of it. And whether you agree or disagree with the New York Times and the Post's take on what it is, uh, what you know, what this truth is, what they say this truth is, or what what it's not, I think we should actually be glad as. Christians at, at this new pushback against relativism. Uh, you know, the, the move to once again to acknowledge in our culture, as we have as Christians, uh, that yes, there is such a thing as objective truth. And it's knowable and it's discoverable. Facts are indeed stubborn things. And our hearts are stubborn things too. And I actually mean that uh, in a good way. All of us deep in our hearts know that there's this thing called truth. 
We want to live in truth. We're just wired that way. We, we want to know what truth is. We're upset when others are untruthful or speak untruthfully to us. Most of us, we don't want to live a life uh, out that's a lie in our lives. We, we want to live truthfully. Our hearts and our minds and our souls, they're restless when we are not living a life founded in truth. And common sense is a stubborn thing too, isn't it? Intuitively, we know when we're confronted with untruth. Our life experiences have given us a basis to know when we're looking at truth and facts uh, and the ability to discern when we're being misled. So you can, you, you can philosophize all you want about postmodern relativism, but both our hearts and our common sense tells us that truth exists. And that's where we meet Thomas, this man of common sense, a man whose heart was drawn towards truth, a man who insisted on tangible evidence before he would believe what other to others told him about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thomas served as the preeminent fact checker for the Gospel of John and, and truly for all of redemptive history. And by the end of his investigation, he would declare that real news had been broken in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, which would change his life, that would change the course of the history of the world, and would change your life and my life as well. So as we begin to actually look at this passage, I, I want to ask you first, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that this good news about his resurrection is fake news? Or do you believe that it's real news? Did it really happen? Is it the truth? Jesus says in uh, verse 29 of our passage, Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And look, there, there are lots of things which others tell you about that you have not witnessed personally that you have taken as truth, that you believe actually happened, even though you weren't there and you didn't see it personally happen. So do you believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead? And I ask this because we are about to consider a man who did not believe Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And then just a short while after that, Thomas becomes a man who believed that Jesus Christ had been risen from the dead. And so as Thomas's experience, his witness, his testimony, is it enough for you to agree with him that Jesus is your Lord 
and Jesus is your God. Now first, we need to consider how John sets up this description of Thomas's interaction with Jesus in, in his gospel, because John frames this interaction with Jesus against his own, John's own personal experience throughout the preceding chapter, chapter 19, which tells us all about the crucifixion. And, and you know, if you have your phones here or at home, or if you have the printed version of uh, the Bible with you, it may be very helpful for you to open up to John, to John chapter 19 and, and follow along as I throw out a few verses to you to consider. If you look at John chapter 19 verses 23 to 24, uh, when Jesus was crucified, John tells us that the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. And if you look in Matthew, you'll hear the same thing. Luke tells us the same thing. Mark tells us the same thing. But when John tells us about this, he adds a number of incidental details. He tells us that one of Jesus' garments, it was seamless. He was sewed in one whole piece together from top to bottom so that when the guards uh, came across it, they, they decided they weren't going to tear it apart into four pieces, but uh, because of its value, they were going to cast lots and, and see who it would go to. And, and so we get this background about uh, why they actually cast lots. And, uh, and you think that, that is just such inconsequential information. We're talking about Jesus' underwear here. Like, what, wh why is John telling us any of this at this most consequential moment? I mean, how would anyone notice this? Why, why would he be telling us this? But we find out why he tells us this as we move on to the next few verses. Because we find out he is personally present and we can assume he overheard this conversation as he watched it unfold. In the following verse 19, chapter 19, verse 25, John writes... So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus, and it goes on to talk about Mary and uh, uh, sister and Mary Magdalene. And the Greek behind this indicates that these things are happening simultaneously. Uh, the soldiers are doing these things, and then uh, this interaction between Mary and Thomas and, and uh, Jesus unfolds at the same exact time. It, I'll, I'll read the rest of it. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And we know throughout the Gospel of John, John refers to himself in this sort of third-person way. So when we hear the disciple whom Jesus loved, that just means John himself. So you get this unique information about uh, Jesus' undergarments, this one-piece garment, and, and you hear about why the soldiers cast lots for it, 
Why? Well, because it's all happening at the same time, at the same place together. John's right there. Mary's right there. The soldiers are right there. They're casting lots. Jesus is right here. Jesus is talking to Mary. Jesus is talking to Thomas. And, and they're all present, most importantly to us. John is present and watching this all unfold. So then uh, chapter 19 goes on. After Jesus died, John goes on to say in verse 31 to 34 that well, it was late in the day and presumably it's right before nightfall when the next Sabbath uh, would officially begin to be observed. And the soldiers needed to get those bodies off the cross, off the crosses uh, in respect to the Jewish law. And so what they typically would do would break their legs to create basically a final death uh, blow to them. And, and so they begin to do that. But it, John tells us when they came to Jesus, they didn't do that because they realized he was already dead. And so instead, they took a sword and stuck it and thrust it into his side. And, and this, this uh, large amount of blood and water flowed out. And, and in verse 35 in chapter 19, John says this, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. Why? So that you may believe, he says. Again, all this third person language is just a self-reference to John himself. And so what's the point here? The point is that John personally spent all day at the cross with Jesus watching what unfolded. He was there at the moment Jesus was nailed to the cross and raised up at the third hour. He was uh, there uh, he, he observed the undergarments of Jesus. He heard the conversation that unfolded with and between the soldiers uh, while they cast lots for the clothes. He interacted with Jesus on the cross. He interacted with uh, Mary as he stood there with her. He remained there until the end of the day, well after the ninth hour. Then he watched them pierce Jesus with a sword and he watched this gushing blood pour out. John wanted you to know that Jesus was dead. He was as dead as dead could be. He was treated differently than the other, others who were on the cross, uh, whose legs were broken. Why? Because he was dead. Uh, and the double, triple, quadruple proved the point. John said he witnessed this gush of blood uh, pouring out from his side because he was pierced by the sword, by the, by the soldier. John says, I saw all of this myself. He was dead, dead, dead. This testimony is true. And then he goes on to prove more about his death that Jesus was dead, verses 38 to 40. He tells us Joseph and Nicodemus took his body from the cross and, he and they wrapped his body 
with a linen around his body, around his face and his head. And then they poured on him 75 pounds of some sticky myrrh and aloe mixture. I mean, that's the weight of my eight-year-old daughter. I mean, just all of this stuff poured from head to toe uh, upon this body. And again, what's the point of all this? It's just to drive home the fact that Jesus was as dead as dead could be. Nicodemus knew it. Joseph knew it. The soldiers knew it. John knew it. There was no doubt in the world Jesus was dead. And why is that important? Why does he spend so much time letting you know that he was dead? It's because someone who wants to prove to you that a person is resurrected from the dead wants to assure you in every which way he possibly can that he was in fact first dead. And that serves as the backdrop for the resurrection appearances in chapter 20. Again, you, you may want to follow along. Look at chapter 20 as I throw out a few other verses. John, because what John does here, he meticulously goes step by step in reverse order through the points that he made in chapter 19 to authenticate Jesus' resurrection. The last thing we hear, or one of the last things we hear of Jesus' death was this aloe, myrrh-soaked linen, which was wrapped around Jesus' body and wrapped around his head. And so in chapter 20, one of the first things we read at the tomb in verses 3 to 8 is Peter and John staring at these same linens which were no longer wrapped around the body of Jesus. The same uh, linens that were just mentioned a few verses before. Then in verse 10 through 18, we hear Mary Magdalene asking the angel about the body. Where's the body? Someone's taken the body. This is the same body that Joseph and Nicodemus had just, we had just heard, had taken off the cross to embalm. And when Jesus appears to Mary, what does she do? She hugs the body. She grabs this body. (laughs) And and Jesus says, let me go. I have more stuff, you know, I have uh, have more business to attend to here. Uh, But it's all about the body. This standing, living body that she's touching. And as Jesus appears to the disciples then in the next section, uh, he, John continues step by step through this authentication process based on what John told us in chapter 19. Verse 20, 2020 tells us that he presented them, well, what, would be the next thing. He presented them his hands and his pierced side. And it says they rejoiced. Why? Because clearly he was alive. Mary believed when she took a hold of his body 
and in 2018, it says that Mary shared this news with the disciples. Why? Because she believed this was real news. The disciples believed when they saw his hands and sides attached to a living body. And in 2025, it says that the disciples shared this news with Thomas, who was not with them when Jesus appeared. Why did they share this? Because they believed it was real news. And so we come to Thomas. The disciples say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Thomas replies in verse 25, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and my hands into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas serves as the fact checker of Mary's testimony as the fact checker of the disciples' news, he serves as the fact checker of the Gospel of John, and as I said, he serves as the fact checker of all of redemptive history. His heart was drawn to truth. He wouldn't settle for anything less. Thomas speaks for all of us. We will not accept this is true if there is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Common sense dictates that it is highly improbable that once a man has been put to death, that he will come back to life again. It was beyond dispute that Jesus was dead. Chapter 19 proved Jesus was dead as dead as could be. And thus, it's highly unlikely that he was now alive. And so Thomas refuses to believe what the disciples tell him. It's just common sense. I mean, don't you agree? You have to be honest with yourself. Yeah, it, it's highly unlikely a man from the dead, a, a, a man who was dead would come back to life. But Thomas doesn't eliminate the possibility that these claims may be true because common sense, it's sensible. It also dictates that if there is tangible proof of an uncommon claim, that indeed it actually may be true. And we've all experienced that from time to time. Something we just think, there's no way that could happen. And it happens. And you're completely convinced that it happened, even though it was highly like, unlikely that it could happen. Common sense is open to stubborn facts. So we're told in verse 26 that uh, it was eight, on the eighth day, eight, eight days later, it was a week later, when Jesus appeared with his disciples and interacted with Thomas. And I mean, you could just imagine what an awful week this must have been for Thomas. Thomas must have been stewing on this news all week long. And if you were in his shoes, you could imagine, you know, the kind of things that were running through his head. There's no way Jesus 
could be alive. He was as dead as dead could be. It's, it's an offense. It's cruel to me and to anyone to claim. It's, it's offensive to claim that this dear brother of ours who is dead is now alive. How can they say these things? It's impossible, isn't it? But boy, it's Peter and, and James and John saying these things. It's, it's Mary, her sweetheart. She's always spoken the truth. And they're so wound up. They're convinced. They really think he's alive. What in the world is going on here? This just doesn't happen. It can't be. But could it? I mean, the, the poor guy, he, he, there's no way this guy could have slept night in and night out as this week unfolded. You know, on the one hand, he knew he understood common sense that this was just so unlikely. But on the other hand, he had his friends whom he loved and trusted saying that it was so. What an awful week torn into two. Oh, we, we could talk more about the importance of of that this event happened on the eighth day. It's the day of worship. And, you know, you, you can let your minds go. You know, they meet Jesus on that. That would be really interesting to talk about. Or, or that it happened in a locked room. Uh, and, and what's behind that? You can think through that yourself a bit. Or uh, Jesus comes and declares to them, peace be with you. And that, that has a lot of wonderful meaning behind it, given all the givens that uh, we're going on through their mind, their relationship with the Jews at that point. And, but for the sake of time, let's just get right to the point. Thomas set the bar for proof necessary to dismiss common sense disbelief. And Jesus met it. A week before, Thomas said, I will not believe unless I touch his nail-scarred hands and his pierced side. A week later, Jesus says to him, touch my nail-scarred hands, put your finger into my side. Stop disbelieving and believe. That's it. That's all there is. What a pregnant moment this was. I mean, we've all had moments in our lives where we moved from disbelief to belief. Like in 2004, 86 years in a row, the Red Sox didn't win the World Series. And then that last pitch crossed the plate and... They won the World Series, and we thought it was totally impossible. This would never happen, but boy, do we believe. Or, or we see uh, on the TV uh, that Tom Brady's being traded or going to Tampa Bay. It's like, no way, it's never going to happen. And then we watch him with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey on. And, and what can we do but believe that, yes, he's not a patriot anymore? Or... 
or we're holding on to one of those $100 million Powerball ticket uh, lottery tickets, and they're reading off number after number, and every number is on my ticket, and they get to that last Powerball, and, and, and they say, my number. It's so highly improbable that this would ever happen, and yet, there it is. I'm a multimillionaire. Or uh, you're driving down the highway and your car begins to spin, doing 360s, and then it turns over six times and lands in a ditch. And the entire time you're thinking, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. And then you open your eyes and you're alive. And you're like, I can't believe it, but it's true. It's uh, Or that, that beautiful woman that you thought would never even date you and and eventually you ask her to marry you and she says yes it's just totally unbelievable but it is true and you now believe i mean just think of the adrenaline that was running through surging through thomas in this moment as the fact checker moved from unbelief disbelief to belief, the tears that must have been welling up in his eyes when he looked at his living dear friend Jesus and said to him, my Lord and my God. I can only imagine what was running through his mind, uh, the, the, the flashbacks that were uh, he was thinking about as, as these words formed on his lips. You know, Thomas has only spoken about two other times uh, in, in the Gospel of John. He's really not spoken about real, in any of the other Gospels. But two other times in the Gospel of John, he's, he's mentioned. The first time is uh, John chapter 11, where Jesus and the disciples find out Lazarus was going to die, or that Lazarus had died, and Jesus says, let's go back to Bethany. Uh, which is near Jerusalem. And Thomas, in a, in a sort of sarcastic, fatalistic, resolved way, says, yeah, yeah, let's go back so we can all die with him. Uh, you know, there's lots of opposition in Jerusalem, and so there's reasons why he thought that they would all die if they go back. And, but then they do go back, and they go, they go to Bethany, and, and they have this conversation with Martha and Mary. And Jesus is there, and Thomas and the other disciples are there. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. And moments later, there Lazarus is standing alive before Thomas and all the other disciples. And the other time that Thomas is mentioned is in uh, chapter 15, I think it's 14 or 15, where uh, it's in the upper room and he asks a question of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me. No man comes to the Father except through me. I, I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. These I ams are, are playing in his mind as he's looking at Jesus 
And you know, as we've studied before, that I am is, is the Old Testament name given to God, the God that we read about in Deuteronomy, who proved himself to be the only true God. There is no other. Well, now here, Thomas is looking at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And from a literary standpoint, John uses Thomas's declaration as the climactic statement of his entire gospel. No greater Christological statement was ever declared than in that moment of movement from unbelief to belief by Thomas, my Lord and my God. John began his gospel in chapter 1, 11 to 12 by saying, he came into his own and his own did not recognize him, but to those who did recognize him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And here at the end of the gospel, we see Thomas recognizing that indeed the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God himself was living and dwelling in their presence in the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is not only good news, it is real news. And as just as Mary declared this news to the disciples who did not know what to make of it, and just as the disciples declared this news to Thomas and, did, and Thomas did not know what to make of it, I am declaring to you today that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He was dead, 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 but now he is alive, alive as you are, alive as I am. And now you have to decide what to make of it. And I, and I doubt anyone in this room or anyone watching right now, I doubt this is a new claim, but I know that some of you have been wrestling with this for a very long time, just as, G, just as John, or just as Thomas did over those seven days. Your common sense experience leads you to be hesitant to believe a man could rise from the dead or that Jesus truly is God. But your heart is longing for truth and you're drawn to this person of Jesus because there's just something that rings true about this man. And your friends whom you love and trust are telling you it is so. And look, it, it, it was not necessary for Thomas to demand what he demanded. What Mary told the disciples was true. What the disciples told Thomas was true. Jesus did nothing more for Thomas than what he had already done seven days before for the disciples. Thomas could have and should have just believed their testimony. And, and you know, Jesus warns earlier in the Gospel of John, he warns against those uh, who have this hubris who on their own demand for some special sign rather than just simply trusting the word of the Son 
of God, the, those words that he has spoken about himself. No, you have everything you need to believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see yet believe, but you have an enormous amount of evidence before you from this gospel, as well as the other gospels, as well as the whole witness of scripture. And Thomas's confession is preeminent among it all. Can you trust this fact checker? Because surely he was as cautious as you when it came to facts and truth. Facts are a stubborn thing. And Thomas looked Jesus in the face and called him God because the facts that he observed were undeniable. His common sense confirmed it. His heart confirmed it. My Lord and my God, he says. And if you're with us next week, our senior minister, Mark Booker, he'll talk more about the evidences written in the Gospel of John and the purpose of the Gospel of John and the implications of this reality if we choose to move from unbelief to belief in Jesus as Thomas did. But let me just say one thing in closing about belief in Christ. Belief in Christ is all about life. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He told Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He told Nicodemus uh, in chapter 3, he tells him that, that uh, God so loved the world that he gave his son that the world might receive everlasting life. He told his disciples in John chapter 10 that I am the good shepherd and I've come to give my sheep life and more abundant life. And so John writes following Thomas's declaration in verses 30 to 31, this gospel is written so that you may believe in Jesus, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. You see, if this is real news, your life depends on Thomas's claim about Jesus. If this is real news, your life depends on Jesus's claims about himself. Your life is immeasurably altered if Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene reported it was so. Matthew reported it was so. Luke reported it was so. The other women who were with Mary reported it was so. John reported it was so. Peter reported it was so. Paul later rep would report that it was so. And Thomas, the fact checker, declares to you that it is so. They reported, you now have to decide. Facts are stubborn things. 
Blessed are those who believe. Let's pray. Lord, uh, it is hard to believe that a man would be resurrected from the dead. But we confess you are no ordinary man. You are man and God, and with you all things are possible. You are the one who created life and gives life and brings life back into being. And Lord, I pray for those who have struggled with accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord, who have struggled in believing that Indeed, he has risen from the dead. Lord, would you do a great work by your spirit in their hearts, even now to convince them deep in their hearts and with their common sense that indeed you are risen from the dead. We ask that those who disbelieve would move to belief even now in the name of Jesus Amen.